0: You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI Podcast, the number one tax podcast for real estate investors.
1: Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam.
0: Hey, thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. This week, Ryan and I welcome Tim Wallen, CEO at MLG Capital, and Rick Reuter, Controller at MLG Capital, to discuss Tim's journey into real estate with MLG and why now is a pivotal time to invest. We also discuss the challenges investors face when transferring real estate to the next generation and strategies for minimizing taxes in the process. And finally, we jump into how funds like MLG's Legacy Fund can help minimize income and estate taxes and offer practical solutions to common challenges with tax-definitioning investments. If you liked our previous episodes on 721 Exchanges, you're going to love this one too. And we're going to dive into all that in just one minute. Hey, Tim, Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Tim, I know you're a CPA. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about how you got started in real estate?
2: Sure. Quite a while. Back in 1985, 86, I graduated from college, master's in tax, and I took a job with Waterhouse out in the San Francisco office. And I was in the small business group, which grabbed all the real estate companies. So I just, by default, landed in the real estate business. And then uh, in uh, 1989, I joined MLG as their CFO back in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is my hometown state. Then I took over, and I, actually, I joined them as a CFO in 89. And then uh, 2000, I became the CEO. So I've been in a leadership role now for about 22, 23 years. So about uh, 35, well, I'm up to like 37 years you know, doing this real estate thing. And i uh, always been very tax focused and everything that uh, that I do.
0: There's a lot of options out there that you, a lot of things you probably could have joined. Why did you choose to join MLG? What makes MLG so unique? You know,
2: I, I've always been kind of an entrepreneur. As a young kid, I was shoveling snow, cutting grass, all that kind of good stuff. So I like the idea of making money. And the benefit of being in the real estate space is, you know, you create value for you and your family and your coworkers and friends and partners. And and you create long-term revenue streams. So it's a it's a great industry to be in. It's been a real blessing to be in the industry and really enjoyed uh, my last 35
3: years doing it.
0: That's awesome. I know today specifically we're still early in 2024. It's early February. A lot of people are unsure of whether or not they should invest today or not given the current, you know, environment that we're in. Why would someone want to invest today?
2: You know, um we have a philosophy at MLG of investing through all cycles, and you know today I we're seeing some of the best cap rates we've seen in multiple decades. We have the least amount of competition on the buy side that we've had in in you know 20 years on the buy side. You know certainly back in the well post Great Recession, the 2009-10 timeframe uh, was also a great buying opportunity. But and then also maybe in the late 80s when I was first in the industry, but. This is one of the few times in, in the last three decades that you've had limited competition on the buy side. The big institutional players, a lot of them are on the sidelines and not investing today. Uh, they have asset allocation uh, issues where they, the bond portfolio got hit by interest rates going up. So they're not putting fresh capital real estate, they're putting the fresh capital into the bond bucket. And uh just creates less competition. Uh, many of the syndicators out there are struggling to raise capital because they. I had issues, and uh, certainly a lot of challenges with the floating rate debt that occurred over over time. So, just a low number of folks that we were competing against, and a great opportunity buying.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. I think that clears up a lot because there's been a lot of confusion out there on whether or not people should be, you know, should be jumping in or not. And it seems like the environment actually opens up some opportunities. Uh, so I know MLG has a bunch of different products out there, a bunch of different ways they can help investors invest in this type of environment. What is the MLG private fund series and how does that benefit investors? So
2: maybe I'll just step back for just a second and give you a little explanation on what kind of makes us unique as a firm. And a lot of guys put real estate funds together. Uh, one of the benefits of funds, is you get a diversified base of assets. And you're not just investing in single assets, getting away from single asset risk. But one of the arts of our business is how you find opportunities to invest in. And uh, we call it our dual sourcing strategy. And this is where, you know, we find assets on our own to buy, but we proactively invest with other real estate operators all, all over the country. So we have over 2000 relationships where we do that. And to give you an example of that, take a market like Minneapolis. We have 60 or 70 different real estate companies we call about doing their deals. Uh, you know, say, hey, Joe real estate guy, I got 20, 30 million in the market right now. What do you got going on? So we see a lot of opportunities from other real estate operators. We see roughly a 100 opportunities a month from other operators. And we're looking to invest in one or two of those. So it's a critical selection process overall. And I kind of, it's almost like we're the Southwest Airlines of the space in that we're approaching our industry in a very different manner compared to our competition, And, you know, most real estate guys, they find deals and then they go raise capital, you know, from the investment community. And what we do is we go raise capital from the investment community and then we go chase real estate guys trying to find the best deals possible. So it's kind of reversing the process of how our industry works. But then on top of that, we're this vertically integrated real estate company and we own and manage roughly 40,000 apartment units, 900 employees. Uh, We have a deep bench of, of, of talented people that know how to buy assets. So about half of what we do is we buy assets on our own uh, with our own long-term 30 years of relationships. And then other half of all, what we do is invest with other real estate guys. So it just gives a great mix in our funds where it's a blend of deals we find on our own and deals that other operators find because it's just a part of the art of this business is finding great smart deals. So, and then on top of that, and you guys will love this one, on top of doing great smart real estate deals, every time we buy, after you buy the deal, you got to do great tax planning. And we're very, very focused on how we save money and how we reduce the tax bill on all of our funds. Nobody's experienced ordinary income on a collective basis It's cumulatively capped in income uh, net. And, um, you know, we're very proud of that. And, and it's very important in improving all on after tax rates and returns.
4: Awesome. Thanks, Tim, and I know Tom and Tim. You guys could probably have an entire podcast episode by yourselves, uh, but maybe to include Rick here uh, as well. Rick, would you mind just giving our listeners a little bit about your background, getting started with MLG, similar to Tim? Kind of give us some some background on you first, and then I'll dive in for some questions with you.
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so from Wisconsin originally, currently work here in Milwaukee. Um, went to, to UW Madison, kind of big into kind of the the tax side and the tax classes there. Actually started. My career at Deloitte in Chicago in the external audit space, a lot of focusing on, you know, hedge funds, mutual funds, broker dealers, kind of the fund structure in there. And then circled back to to the homeland here in Milwaukee, jumped on with MLG in in 2014 and really dove into um, the tax side of real estate where, you know, there's a lot of interesting strategies that we implement here um, to like Tim mentioned you know, enhance after tax returns for investors.
4: Awesome. Yeah. And obviously, well, we got lots of tax questions for you guys. Maybe for you, Rick, if you could just maybe tell our listeners who might be curious, can you invest, you know, with a retirement account and kind of talk about that as far as your guys' funds and things like that, retirement accounts?
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our our private funds, there's two options for investment. One is the main fund. That's a direct pass through partnership. And that's where most taxable investors will invest to take advantage of beneficial taxable losses. However, there's another side, the dividend fund side, that feeds through a subsidiary REIT. And that allows tax-exempt investors, including retirement accounts, to invest um, without running into unrelated business, taxable income, UPTI issues.
4: As far as kind of the, the funds that you guys do and the tax structuring, you know, some of those tax considerations uh, that you have, talk about like a cost segregation study and kind of pulling that in.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For, for the closed end funds, I mean, cost segs are, are huge. One of the main strategies is creating beneficial ordinary losses that we can then pass through to investors. And in year one, typically we're able to get roughly 50 to 60% um, loss allocation as a percentage of capital contributed. And as you noted, cost segs are huge, you know, breaking up the acquisition of that property into hundreds of different assets, allocating as much as supportably possible to shorter class lives, which will accelerate depreciation deductions, including, you know, increasing the amount of potential bonus depreciation that we can take. Um, But in addition to that, we'll hit a lot of value-add properties, we'll do CapEx improvement work. So we're making sure that we can expense as much as possible while still falling under the uniform cap rules involves a CapEx analysis as well as expense elections. And another thing I guess I'd like to hit on kind of the close end tax strategy is really the, the sales side. So sales strategies include timely sales as well as sales price allocations. So timely sales are important because they add passive 1231 gains into the investor's tax picture. And that can be very beneficial. Those passive 1231 gains can release prior year passive ordinary losses, and when those are released, those ordinary losses can help offset other ordinary income that investor may have, and that can shift most of their taxes into the capital gain rates. So this is a you know a great um, you know investor after tax IRR benefit. In some cases, we've seen roughly you know one to two percent increase in after tax IRR due to that hidden benefit. And the other side of of sales is really being strategic about sales price allocations and making sure that you're mitigating or eliminating as much ordinary recapture as possible.
4: Yeah, I think a lot of times the tax aspect of a return on investment can get lost. Not to everyone, for sure, but sometimes it's good to bring in that aspect, especially with you guys understanding this space, you know, being CPAs, things like that, kind of tying that in. Super important for you guys is uh, just kind of. Selling and and getting uh, investors kind of what they're looking for with those passive losses, offsetting passive income, or if they're real estate professional status, obviously that can have a different impact. Uh, That's extremely positive for them as well. One other question for you, Rick. So within like your guys' diversified private funds, do you guys offer a composite K-1? So we don't
3: file state composites because typically results in investors paying way too much tax and it reduces their after-tax return. So composites in general subject investors to paying state tax at the highest rates on gross income for that investment for that year. So you're not only paying the highest rates, but you're losing the benefit of prior year losses and you're losing the benefit of losses you may have from other investments in that state. You know, further. Investors' resident states may not allow a credit for taxes paid to other states if that tax was paid in a composite. A lot of states don't allow investors to be in a composite if they have multiple investments in that state. So some funds filing these composite returns may not even be in compliance. Um, We do have a solution, though, for kind of the multi-state tax filing burden that comes with diversified funds, and that's to invest in the dividend fund side. Um, as a subsidiary REIT is going to block multi-state tax filing obligations for investors on that side.
0: Before we go any further here, just to kind of recap, because I know there's a lot of people out there who are investing as an LP. They, they may understand what a composite return is. But for those who are new or perhaps never invested as a limited partner before, a composite return, basically, it's when the partnership, or in this case, perhaps the fund, they're filing a state return uh, on the partnership side on behalf of of their partners. So then the the, the limited partners and all the partners really in the deal do not have to worry about filing state K-1s with their company. However, like you said, there's a lot of downsides uh, to doing that. For that reason, you guys chose not to do that for these funds. Correct. That makes a ton of sense. So shifting gears a little bit, again, there's a lot of different uh, funds that your team has available. What is the MLG Legacy Fund and why create it?
2: So just to differentiate. So we have our MLG private funds series. We roll out a of new private funds, which are close on funds that usually have about an eight to 10 year life. And we typically like the current funds, $400 million. And we'll roll out a new fund like that every, every 24 month. But it's not, it's not a perpetual fund. It, we go buy 25, 30 assets, create value, then sell them off. And then that fund is done and goes away. The legacy funds was referred to as an evergreen fund it means it goes on a perpetuity, but it's a very specialized fund with a specialized focus and you can't take cash investments into it, but primarily it exists as a wealth transfer strategy. And it's about how do you move wealth from one generation to the next? If you have appreciated real estate and how do you do that in a manner that's most tax efficient and adds the most benefits to, you know, to the family? I've seen a lot of mistakes made, um, in my career where people try to move wealth to one generation to the next or they don't do any planning and then they just give it to the kids and then the four or five heirs are fighting over these assets and what was meant to be a blessing to the family ends up being a curse and the kids up in a lawsuit fighting over what to do. Do we sell? Do we not sell? Do we improve? Do we not improve? And it's, it's um creates lots of problems because when you have different heirs. They all tend to have different objectives in life. And it can even be the two real estate guys, you know, the two real estate sons. They don't agree on what to do. And it creates friction and problems in the family. So this is a structure that deals with people who have made, a, you know, material wealth in their, and their, in, in real estate over their life. We have a billion two in assets. We opened up this fund two years ago and we already have a billion two in assets have come in. And in this structure, it's referred to as what uh, another way referred to as the 721 contribution fund. And 721 is an IRS code section, which basically allows the transfer of assets into a partnership and have that generally be tax free. As long as the basis exceeds the debt, it generally should be a tax fee transfer into the partnership. And so by doing that, so you, I'll use an example and I'll use a, I'll make it the name Bruce. Uh, you know, Bruce and his wife, uh, had an, one large apartment complex. They, they, they sold a bunch of stuff, They kept trading up the bigger properties and all of a sudden they have 200 apartment units and they're 70 years old. And it's also worth like, you know, $20 million. And maybe they paid their debt off over time. But yet what happens is in this example, and this is a real life example where a gentleman would not travel with his wife because he wouldn't leave his property. So the burden of asset management is real and the the husband wouldn't leave. The wife wants to travel and he says, honey, we're not going to go. we got to watch over our asset. And I like, we got all this money. We can't, what are we doing? We're trapped by our property. I, I need a solution here. And so in this structure, when you contribute an asset to our fund, you, you get the value of your asset, you get away from asset management. We take over the, the, the asset management on that property. And now instead of owning one asset, you're you're part of a basket of assets. So right now the legacy funds are billion two in assets. So instead of having 20, 20 million in one asset, you got 20 million in this basket of 1.2 billion in assets. And we do that hard living, We heavy lifting. You know, again, we manage roughly 40,000 apartment units, we have 900 employees. We know how to do this thing, and we take away that burden. But it does many other things. It brings diversification to the family, getting away from single-asset risk, you're part of a portfolio of assets overall. It also brings in a strategy to actively grow NOI, to create value for the family. A lot of families, they get very content. They don't push rents. They don't improve their property. They don't look to create value. They want to make it as easy as possible, so they, they tend to have the rents below market. They brag about being 99, percent occupied, but they're doing nothing to grow the value of their asset. So again, diversification, get away from asset management. In our fund, none of our people that contribute assets so far are paying a dime in diamond income taxes. Another situation, there's a gentleman, uh, two partners, 30 million in equity. Uh, their annual tax bill is about $750,000 a year. Since they've done the structure, they have their tax bill is zero. Not a penny in taxes has been paid since they've done the structure. So, you know, again, the art of not paying income taxes in real estate is never stop buying, never stop investing. But the reality is you age up, you don't feel like it. Or maybe you're six, another guy you who's know, 60 six years old. He wants to go go on the beach, go play golf, go have fun. And and he just doesn't want to work hard him, as hard as he was for the last 25, 30 years. And, and all of a sudden what happens, you do that, you start paying a bunch of income taxes because you're not – actively investing. So we can we proactively have a strategy to reduce and, and eliminate ordinary income as much as possible. And then from estate tax planning, not everybody will understand that, but uh there's something called a minority discount. When you go from full control on assets and then you become a minority partner, you now have a lack of control discount, a valuation discount, because you don't have full control over those assets. So something that was worth 20 million I use another example, uh, two guys, about a hundred million each, but a hundred million dollar state situation by contributing the assets in that value instantly goes from a hundred million down to roughly, well, it drops, depends on the, on the facts and circumstances, but let's call it 30% discount. Something goes from a hundred million down to 70 million. It's a typical discount you have. And also I eliminate 30 million of your state and that also saves you 12 million in state tax if you have a taxable state. And you haven't done all the other planning, but then there's some really cool things you can do. You can, you can sell those interests to a slat for your kids, uh, and do installment sale, get that value out of your state in its entirety. There's a ton of planning opportunities. So, you know, reducing income taxes, reducing estate taxes, getting away from asset management, creating diversification. And that's what the legacy funds all about. It's about a permanent solution to deal with how do you move wealth to the next generation and giving flexibility to the heirs. And we have liquidity vehicles that if one error wants cash, we can provide cash. If one error wants a tax-deferred solution, we can do that. And again, lots of different things we can do and lots of flexibility. So it's very dynamic. And, you know, we've had multiple families take their entire portfolio. You think about that emotional decision. You spent your whole life building up this portfolio, and you contribute it to this fund that we manage for them. And you, you think about the level of trust that you have to have, the level of confidence and the benefits that it's bringing to the family, and so uh, just that alone is testimonial to why and, and the effectiveness and the power of the structure. Uh, and it's commonly not done in industry, and I have a lot of uh, reasons why it's not done. It's very complex to administer. You know, we have twelve CPAs on staff. Not many real estate firms have twelve CPAs on staff. Rick on here is a total stud, and uh, he knows a ton about the stuff. But we've also partnered up uh, with other other. Group groups and whatnot in uh, in in the complexity of this. So it's been vetted and very powerful benefit to, to families in their life planning.
0: That's awesome. I know people are always looking to exit their properties in a tax efficient manner, and this seems to be one way to do so. And there's a lot of great benefits to doing that. What problems do you see with these types of popular solutions in the marketplace today?
2: You know, when people are looking for long-term solutions with wealth creation in private real estate, what's happened in the past commonly, and I'll go back to my Bruce example. Bruce was going to sell his apartment complex and buy a triple net office medical office building with like ten years left on the lease. But the problem with the triple net product is you tend to overpay on a price per square foot basis. You're taking single credit risk, and you have a lease term that's declining from the day you buy it. So the day you buy a triple net asset. The next day, it's worth less because the maturity of the lease is shorter and shorter. you have seen it today in Walgreens across the country. Walgreens actually closing locations. Walgreens were all sort of you know never could lose if I bought a Walgreens, but it has some real traps to it from a credit perspective, from a value perspective. In general, I think there's real risk of losing your equity. So it, you park your, you solve your asset management problem by buying a triple net deal, but you created new problems and risk of losing capital, losing value. Plus, you generally create ordinary income taxes. If you look at most triple net deals and you go out 10 and 5, 10 years in the lease term uh, and you're amortizing debt, you generally, your extra tax cash flows go to almost zero because of your know, paying down debt. And it's, it's very problematic. Another thing people might trade into, you know, other assets and you just get lack of diversification uh, and overall. Another common tool is DSTs, Delaware statutory Trust, So people trade into those. It's a newer product that's Certainly got a lot of legs in the last, you know, last decade. The problem with DST is it's not a permanent solution. When you trade into a DST with your 1031 proceeds, you know, at some point that DST is going to unwind and you're going to have to trade again. So if you're 70 years old and you do a 10-year DST structure, 10 years from now when you're 80, you got to trade again. And maybe you're not even around. Uh, you know, maybe you're not doing well and it's going to be difficult for you to do that. So it's not a permanent solution. There are some things that can be done there. They tend to have monster fees. You typically are giving up two to three hundred basis points a year in fees, heavy fee fees overall, and generally very limited value growth. It's very difficult to capitalize any kind of value- add strategy in a DST. So the ability to create value on your equity is very limited in the DST structure. So again, the legacy fund was created as an alternative to these products because it doesn't have the same challenges. Uh, there's also a common thing of people trading trade in tenant common structures and they have a piece of it, the deal. Tenant common structures one where uh, you they're buying an asset and maybe it needs 20 million of equity, and you spit that 20 million of equity into you know, say five pieces ranging from two to ten million dollars per piece. And what happens there it, to have a work under the tax laws, each tenant common member needs to have a certain amount of control and power. Now you have Corporate, what I call corporate governance problem that now you have multiple people that you may not have that big of relationship with having a saying what to do in an asset. And what if you disagree? And again, you have different goals and objectives and it creates real problems, you know, overall. So I'm not a big fan of tenant common structures unless you can control the management of each of the tenant common members. I'm not a big fan of tenant common structures overall, you know, for families overall. Um, and then probably another last. Uh, common scenarios, upreach structures, uh, where people contribute their value of real estate. Uh, I know an example, I won't use the name, but the group contributed roughly $300 million of real estate into a publicly traded REIT. The REITs are down 40%. percent Multifamilies are down 30 40% in the last two years. That doesn't feel too good because you have a lot of volatility. Public REITs have a high correlation rate to the S&P 500. Whereas private real estate has a very low correlation rate to the S&P 500, so the volatility in the stock market, REITs go up and down more dramatically, and private real estate, you know, tends to be a lot less volatile. In fact, private real estate proved its worth in this cycle. You get a lot of rent growth to offset the impact of higher interest rates overall. So, uh, you know, public REITs have real problems. There's all the REIT compliance issues. and you, know, you can't sell for two. You, can only, you can't sell for two years once an asset comes in. Uh, You know, um, they're they're not structured to eliminate or reduce income taxes. They they don't do bonus depreciation. Uh, Everything's straight line depreciation for the public reach. So they're not looking to eliminate your ordinary income. And again, so it deals with a long-term asset management solution. It deals with diversification to a degree, but now you got single stock risk. So, you know, I'm not always the best fan of that. So anyways, there's solutions out there for how do you move wealth to the next generation? How do you get away from asset management? And, uh, we think the legacy fund really tackles the complexity of how you move wealth from one generation to the next.
0: Uh, that makes a ton of sense. And we we've explored a lot of these opportunities here on the show and you know, there's pros and cons and all of, of all of them. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of reasons why people want to go passive, right? There's asset management issues, there's property management issues in some cases people are retiring, sometimes it's simply age, maybe it's issues with the family. With all these different reasons why someone might want to go passive, what would you say is like the number one reason out of all these reasons why someone might want to go passive?
2: You know, I, I think getting away from asset management and going to enjoy life, like in my Bruce story was wife wants them to go travel and have fun. It's probably the biggest reason. The people are getting old and they realize that they're not going to be able to do this the rest of their life. They don't have kids in the business and they don't have a solution for asset management that goes on for the balance of their life. And uh, so I'd say asset management is number one. Um, the taxes are certainly not far behind, but asset management is definitely
0: number one. Absolutely. I'd say it's probably from my experience, just what I've seen working with clients in various stages of their life. Usually it's the asset management in some way, shape, or form that ends up burning them out and wants to drive them a passive. And I, and I understand that I know we're going to dive into some more of the taxes here in just a second, but I, I one of the reasons why I've seen people be hesitant, especially lifelong landlords jump into something like this is control. So for the people who, who are used to being in control of their portfolio, control of their assets, and are now gonna take this more passive jump. What do you say to those folks? Well, I
2: mean, do I look at it, you know, we all wanna live forever, and, but you know, God didn't wire us that way. You know, most of us, you know, go on uh, to the next stage of uh, life in eternity and you know, eighty-five, somewhere between eighty and ninety, you start losing it. Uh, you don't have the ability to do this. And so you, you have to answer that question. You could have control, and I, uh, we have many folks that are in silence. But I like the structure. I don't have a kid to hand this to. I don't have a solution for asset management, but I'm 7, 77 years old, and I like having control. And I'm just not ready. But the reality is, sometimes, you know, you know, God doesn't give us a time clock to when we're going to go, and you're leaving a real problem for your your state and your family. And at some point, you got to bite the bullet and have a plan. Uh, whatever it is, have a plan. You know, doesn't don't have the MLG and legacy fund. Have a plan on how you're going to move this asset from the next generation. You know, you're, you're also, you know, if you don't plan well, you know, your government is now your beneficiary of your state. There's no reason why you can't move material wealth to one generation next. but you, Tom, and Ryan, and and uh, you guys can do some great planning for families. There's no reason to pay material state taxes. And if you have any time. to to plan and get ahead of this. You should not be paying material state taxes, but you just got to get together with Tom and Ryan and do that. It's just so simple, but it's so silly. And and unless you like the the government and like giving your money away, I I don't know why people don't plan. It It just baffles me, but actually I know the reason why they don't want to give up control, you know, (laughs) it's that control issue. But at some point you have to figure that out. You just can't ignore it. It's not going away. It's like a bad tooth that you got to yank out, you know, some point you just got to do it and you got to figure it out.
4: Yep. Yeah. It's tough to give up control uh, when you've had control for decades over your assets, but it's good to have a plan because at some point you've got to give up control uh, of that, whether it, whether you do it voluntarily and you make a plan for it or you're giving it to your kids and ultimately that's giving up control as well. So absolutely. Maybe Rick, I can come over to you for a question. So let's pretend I'm, I'm asking for a friend I've uh, talked about this on a different podcast. Let's pretend I am selling a fourplex. Okay. Could I say I've got a hundred thousand dollar gain that's going to be associated to my name. Could I, for example, come and invest into your guys's legacy fund and minimize tax, estate taxes, any of that? How would that work as far as kind of that fund? And if I were to do something like that?
3: Yeah. So the, the legacy fund now, very complex vehicle, a lot of complex structure in there. So we do have, a 3 million dollar equity minimum to go into the legacy fund but once you're hitting kind of the the minimums absolutely i mean anyone is really able to feed into the fund whether that's a direct property contribution a 1031 escrow or even an asset that you know needs to be sold quickly those last two fact patterns you know we would mix in a 1031 exchange Along with a 721 contribution, and it really depends what legal structure you're in. If it's directly held as an individual, it's going to result in a 1031 inequality replacement property that that we'll source. And then a contribution at a future date once investment intent is is met for 1031 purposes. Um, If it's a multi-member entity, we can kind of match up a 1031 exchange with 721s of partnership interest, but making sure that that partnership remains intact for 1031 purposes. So at the end of the day, there's absolutely, you can enter the fund, get that initial tax deferral, as well as the year-over-year tax savings. But there is going to be a materiality concept with the fund like our structure and, and minimums that, that we're looking to hit.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the reality is you're probably better off with the small small checks with the DST structure. But I would look at a DST structure that gives you the ability to convert to a partnership structure that's diversified After a two-year window, the downside of that structure is that they don't protect your value. So If the values go down in between and the single asset they trade you into, you have no protection in the DST world for that two-year period of value drop, whereas ours is a solution that you can do immediately. But again, smaller checks, DSTs do work well for smaller checks.
4: Okay. So people could do, we kind of talked about 1031 exchanges, so people could do a 1031 exchange into the legacy fund, it sounds like.
3: So the legacy fund is a partnership interest. So you cannot directly 1031 exchange real estate into that partnership interest. Um, If it's held by an individual, it's really going to be a two-step process where you're doing a 1031 exchange and it can be into a managed account that MLG kind of runs as an asset manager. But that entity has to hold that replacement property for investment intent. We see safe investment intent hold period is roughly two years. So two years kind of in that replacement property and then a subsequent contribution. However, what I said before, if you're a multi-member, there's a lot of flexibility in there because that multi-member entity can do that 1031 exchange and the partners that are in that multi-member entity simultaneously with that 1031 exchange, they're able to do 721 contributions of their partnership interest to the legacy fund.
4: Got it. Okay. I might've missed that part with the 1031 of being a partnership. So thank you for clarifying that. Maybe maybe you guys can kind of briefly, obviously we're talking to a bunch of CPAs, which we don't normally get all CPAs on here, but for people who are very curious about some more of the tax aspects, maybe you guys could just talk about the legacy fund still, kind of the tax considerations there, kind of that structure.
3: Yeah, sure. So I'll hit, for the legacy fund, maybe I'll hit kind of three major buckets of benefits. And one is you know, full tax deferral upon contribution of property to the partnership in exchange for partnership interest in accordance with 721A. So that qualifies for non-recognition of your your built-in gain. The second bucket is what's your year-over-year ordinary income tax picture looking like? As Tim alluded to um, previously, there's, you know, a lot of people that are holding real estate, it's depreciated. They're cutting ordinary income tax checks over the government year-over-year while holding that depreciated real estate. What the legacy fund does is it's going to take any kind of proceeds that it could potentially lever up or properties it's buying up in in 1031 exchanges and create fresh basis. Um, When that fresh basis is created, it will use similar strategies to the closed-end fund that we talked about to accelerate deductions. So the first two years of the fund produced nice, ordinary loss allocations um, to investors of 8% and 7%, respectively, as a percentage of contributed capital. And these are low basis assets, again, feeding in that qualify for full deferral. So that's why the losses aren't amounting as high as the closed-end funds, but still very beneficial getting cash and getting loss allocations. Um, The third bucket is really the death tax benefits. So an investor is able to achieve permanent built-in gain tax deferral via a step-up in basis at death, and it can transfer over to the heirs. In addition to that, the Legacy Fund has a 754 election in place, which is going to create additional tax assets for the heirs. So the heirs who wish to continue to hold can get additional depreciation deductions that will feed back to them, just them, that can help shield kind of their ordinary income tax picture.
4: Awesome. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that, Rick. There's a ton of aspects to that. And obviously, I'd say the common thing that we talk about on our podcast is deferred, deferred, deferred die uh, as a common kind of really long term strategy. I'd say it's probably the longest term game strategy that real estate investors specifically can be using. So, getting that step up in basis, especially if you can defer the tax just a long time, huge strategy, I think, for a lot of people it's almost too far into the future to conceptualize and they uh, find it hard to actually execute on that. But absolutely, that's a key part of, I think, this fund that you guys have that can be a great solution for clients that you guys have. We have uh, in order to reduce that tax and therefore give more to their heirs and beneficiaries. So
0: that's great. All right, so kind of rounding some things out here, I know we're kind of getting towards the end here. Any final words or any final things we'd like to mention for the listeners who might be considering uh, jumping into a fund like this legacy fund to defer their taxes?
2: My main message to everybody is just do your planning. You know, we talked about that earlier. Don't hide from it. You know, it's like even problems in life, you got to run right at it. You can't run away from it. It's going to run you over from behind. You know, pick up the phone, call Tom, call Ryan. Figure out what you're doing, and uh, the tax plan will get you if you don't plan, but if you plan, you can avoid it. And unfortunately, the ultimate tax planning strategy is death. <laughs> you know, you, you want to defer, 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 and then you die, and then you get a basic step up. You know, that is the ultimate tax planning strategy, and uh, it's not fun to talk about, but it's reality for all of us. So, you know, I really encourage people to step up and grow up and do your planning. You know, and then you're going to have to give control someday if you want to do that. Now, if you have kids in the business and you want to give it to them, then do it. I mean, a legacy fund is not built for somebody who wants to transfer the wealth to their family and they want to stay in, in the real estate business. It does work if you have multiple layers and one family member wants to be in the real estate business and the rest don't. You know, we can work with that fact pattern. But if you have your family in cohesive unit that wants to keep a real estate business going, then keep it, keep control. But again, you still want to plan on how you're going to move that wealth to the next generation. And uh, I just can't stand the idea of giving the money to the government versus giving it to some great foundation to help kids at risk or give it to your kids or whatever your passions are. Uh, there's no reason to just give it to the government so they can spend it on crazy stuff that they spend it on. But uh, I, I, I much prefer to see it used more wisely than that.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. If our listeners out here, if they're maybe considering a strategy like this and they want to learn more about the MLG fund and perhaps how how your group can help them uh, facilitate a, a tax-deferred strategy like this, what's the best way for them to get in touch and, and go through that procedure or learn more rather?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a couple approaches. I mean, one is, you know, we certainly have our, our website, mlgcapital.com. The letters is like Mary, Larry, Gary. It was called the Mooningless Age Group, but it that MLGCapital.com uh, and then a backslash legacy if you want to jump right to the legacy fund. But you can know, you look at our website, check things out. Uh, Andrew Ebenich uh, at our firm is one's kind of a first contact for a lot of people. Uh, Andrew's uh, actually I can give you his numbers. Andrew Ebenich two six two nine five seven six seven eight four and two six two nine five seven six seven eight four and it's Andrew Ebenich. Um, and, uh, but anyways, we have a whole team and, uh, you know, eventually most people that work with us, they're going to be eventually talking to Rick as well and Billy Fox and others, on uh, and Tom Pugh. But again, you know, we have 12 CPAs on staff that help people through this, help them through the mathematics of it, um, help through the emotion of it. This is an emotional decision when you're making some of these decisions or long-term keep planning things. And, uh, we've certainly had a lot of experience, a lot of families, and even partnership situation, we had an entire real estate company can contribute their entire portfolio to us. We had one group, 200 million in assets, multiple investors, multiple partners, and they all were done and they want to be done. And, uh, the solution not only gave the real estate sponsor a tax deferred solution, also gave all their investors inside the firm, a tax deferred solution. And now every individual within that group can go do uh, you know what they want to do. So, anyways, that's probably the best way to get a hold of us. Um, and um, I'm always available as well. And more than happy to talk people, talk to people, and help them through these uh, these big decisions in life.
0: No, absolutely, absolutely big decisions. So we're gonna go ahead and drop that into the show notes uh, below for everybody who's listening. If you do want to check that out, if you are uh, doing some exit planning, you're doing some long-term planning for yourself, uh, this is certainly a viable option. So. Again, I will drop that in the show notes. Uh, Tim, Rick, want to thank you for joining us today and uh, sharing the strategy with our listeners. Well, thanks, guys. We appreciate your time. That was another tremendous episode. Uh, we love MLG. We brought them on because uh, you know we know, it, you know if you've been a long time listener of this show, you are always looking for ways to reduce your taxes, and on exit is usually when you're going to pay sometimes your highest taxes because you're going to hold the property for however many years. Maybe you forced depreciation by using a value add strategy and now you're gonna have this big gain. And your question is, well, how do I get rid of this gain? Of course, there's the 1031 exchange where you defer your taxes by purchasing a new property and rolling your sales proceeds in from your rep- from your original property into this new deal, into the replacement property. And then there's the lazy 1031 exchange where you use passive losses to offset the capital gain on sale. And you're getting those passive losses either from that property perhaps you had in previous years or perhaps from other properties in the current year or even prior years from the suspended losses so those are kind of two popular strategies now when you start to want to get into not managing property anymore uh, your options become a little bit more interesting so the way that works is so if you're going to use a 1031 exchange just a pure vanilla 1031 exchange you're going to sell your property, you're going to identify a replacement property, and you're going to acquire that property within 180 days. And then you're typically going to be the one responsible for managing that property, or maybe you have a property manager, but nonetheless, the asset management will ultimately fall on your shoulders, that responsibility for that property. And same thing with the Lazy 1031 exchange, you're going out and buying another property. The good news is with the Lazy 1031 exchange you can invest into a syndicate, or fund that'll give you passive losses in the year that you sell your property, that'll be to help you offset that gain, right? Um, maybe the lazy 1031 exchange, there is an off-ramp where you're not active anymore. But assuming these two strategies are not viable uh, for you in some way, shape or form, then you have to look at your alternatives. And one of the most popular alternatives, the ones that have been popular over the last few years have been using a 1031 exchange to swap into what's known as a Delaware Statutory Trust or DST. And that's usually when you buy this big property or an institutional grade property, uh, usually a retail center, like a Dollar Tree or a Walgreens, kind of like what Tim mentioned before. And now you're in this DST, but that does come with high fees and it's not usually diversified. It's usually a single asset. So that could be an issue with the DST. But now we get into something called the 721 exchange. And we've talked about this here on the show. And long story short, what happens with a 721 exchange is you are exchanging your property. You're contributing your property into a partnership in exchange for a partnership interest in that partnership. So it's usually not taxable when that occurs. Instead, it will, you will, you will be taxed as you start selling off those partnership interests. Now, 721 exchanges uh, as they are typically structured is going to be with a REIT. So it's going to be known as an upREIT and long story short, basically what happens is the REIT has a carve out for 721 exchanges where you'll exchange your property into this partnership structure and you'll effectively have shares of the REIT. And again, as you sell off those shares, you'll start recognizing capital gains and that's when you'll pay the taxes. Now, the issue with this is that in most cases, properties that, they'll, that these REITs will accept are gonna be commercial assets, almost institutional grade assets in many cases. So if you have your fourplex or even your 32 unit or maybe 50 or even 100 unit apartment complex, it may not always meet the criteria of this up So what happens is you can't just directly contribute your property using the 721 exchange into this partnership instead you have to 1031 exchange into an asset that would meet the criteria of these funds, right? Of these partnerships. So for example, you might have your fourplex or you might have your 32-unit apartment complex. And instead, so what you do is you 1031 exchange it into let's say an industrial property, right? And this industrial property meets the criteria of these funds, whether it be an upreit or whether it be a fund like MLG's legacy fund. So what happens is you 1031 exchange into this commercial property, and then you later, after the property seasons again, you know, you could ask, it, it varies on what exactly how long you have to hold it. But to, to Tim's point before, or Rick's point before, two years is usually appropriate uh, for that seasoning period. And at that point, after you hold that asset for two years, now you're moving it into these funds. And the good thing about a 721 exchange versus say DST is diversification because in many cases these upreads or these funds like MLG's fund are going to have multiple properties, usually in many geographic locations, perhaps even across asset classes. So you might have your 32 minute apartment complex, you then 1031 exchange into this commercial property, and then that ultimately gets absorbed through the 721 exchange into this fund. Now you have a diversified pool of funds that you're invested into. And again, kind of like what they mentioned before with these upgrades, sometimes they're publicly traded and their values are tied to the stock market and that becomes problematic. But with funds, when it's a a private fund, you're not tied to the S&P 500. So if the S&P 500 tanks, your asset values may not necessarily go along with it if it's not correlated. So long story short here, the reason why we're doing this debrief today is because we know we went through a lot on the show and you might be wondering, well, how's a fund like MLG's legacy fund or how does any other fund of a similar nature help me uh, from a tax perspective? And the bottom line is it allows you to contribute your property to the partnership in some cases directly in exchange for those partnership interests. And that's tax deferred. You'll start recognizing your tax as you start selling off those shares, assuming you don't get a step up in basis and you, you, know, you die and do your estate planning and pass on those shares to your heirs. Um, the alternative ways, if your property does not qualify for a 721 exchange because it doesn't meet the criteria of one of these funds or or an upreit, you do a 1031 exchange into an asset deferring your taxes that does, and then that asset gets eventually absorbed by the 721 exchange, continuing to defer your taxes. And now, again, as you start selling off those shares, assuming you do sell them, that's when you will start recognizing that capital gain. So, in a nutshell, it's kind of what we talked about today. And MLG's legacy fund is a mechanism for helping you do that.
4: Yeah. I was just going to chime in on two things, Tom, try to keep in this debrief short. Number one, the two-year thing, right? A lot of people may be, what, what's this two-year thing? Just real brief. It's essentially just to show intent, right? The two years is to show intent that this is for this 1031 exchange that we're doing. The intent is to complete a full-blown 1031 exchange. We're not just trying to say, hey, do this. And then a month later, I'm going to change that, right? The IRS could say, hey, was that really your intent to buy into that new property? So that's the two-year thing to show intent that this is a legitimate 1031 exchange. The second thing I was going to highlight was uh, my, my question to Rick, which was like, hey, can I take my $100,000 gain and go you know, invest into this legacy fund? Well, there's minimums, right? And so that's why for some people, sometimes doing these legacy funds or other things like this is is not a good fit for everyone because oftentimes there's minimums. You have to invest so much in order for them to essentially accept you into accepting your asset or whatnot. So this isn't like, hey, I bought my first property. I'm gonna sell it for, like I said, a million bucks. I'm gonna go do this. Probably not gonna work. So my point is, the reason this isn't like talked about every single day on the podcast is because it's not relevant to every single person. It's relevant to a lot of people. The bigger the gain, obviously, the more likely that this is going to be a good solution for you. But point is, just be careful of kind of, how can I get into this? Does this make sense for me? It might make sense for some people. Doesn't mean it makes sense for everyone.
0: Absolutely. It's a great point. It's a tool in the tool belt. It's one of the many exit strategies you have available to you. And just remember, the earlier you start thinking about the stuff, the earlier you start planning for the stuff, the more options will be available to you. And I got to say, you know, uh, I look at real estate as a lifelong game. So I intend to be in real estate in some way, shape or form until the day I I die. What capacity that will be in will unfold before me. But if you want to pass down your assets to your heirs and you want to remain in control of your portfolio, then you really need to start thinking early on. How can I raise my children? Right. How can I develop my children into individuals? How can I develop their competency into one that can take over this portfolio. And hopefully one of your children's interests will actually align with that. Right. You don't want to force uh, somebody who has no interest in this whatsoever, including one of your children, perhaps into this if they don't want to. Uh, But assuming that you could see this coming, you could perhaps develop or raise one of your children to fit into the role to take over your portfolio. And then something like this may not be necessary. But the earlier you could see this, like Stephen Covey says, start with the end in mind. If you could see this coming 30, 40 years down the road, you have plenty of runway to perhaps make that happen. And perhaps that's not how you want to do it. And now you know another tool in your tool belt that can help you make this transition when that time comes. But you know what happens for a lot of people is they don't plan ahead. They get to the end, they get to their 70s and 80s, and they don't have any other viable options. And this becomes a very viable option for you at that point. You get to diversify your portfolio into the hands of a fund managed by a company with a great track record. And most of these companies who do offer these types of opportunities do. Always do your own due diligence. If we don't say that enough on the show, you don't want to just take what you hear here on the show and go run with it. Go look into it yourself. Do your own due diligence. Speak to your own advisors and make sure it makes sense for you. Uh, But again, just another tool in the tool belt. And I'm sure we'll be talking about estate planning, succession planning a lot more as time goes on. But again, just remember, the earlier you can start planning for this stuff, and I know it's far way off for a lot of people, the more control you have in what options you have available to you. All right, so I, I think that's about it for today. If you do have questions on stuff like this, do join our Facebook group, www.taxforninvestors.com slash Facebook, or go ahead and check out our insiders group where Ryan and I are always answering questions, and the rest of our team are answering questions from Tax smart investors like you. That is www.taxsmartinvestors.com/slash-insiders. We'll see you there, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.